I'm Pastor Michael Ansman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. I'd like to welcome you and to thank you for listening to our Sunday morning sermons. I hope that they're a blessing to you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. So what I'm going to do this morning is focus on the reading that we heard from the book of Genesis, or the story of Joseph. And the story of Joseph is one that it's incredibly rich and incredibly vivid. If you didn't start tearing up a little bit at the reunion part, there might be something wrong with you. You might be dead inside, but don't worry. By the end of the service, you'll be made alive. It's a beautiful story. And the pre-scholar, Father Patrick Henry Reardon, he notes in his wonderful book on uh, of short reflections on Genesis that the church fathers, both East and West, see Joseph not only as a prophet, but his story is a prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this story is full of Christological topography we might get into shortly. It also highlights the providence of God at work in someone's life with the goal of furthering God's plan of salvation, working itself out among the elect people he has chosen. It's a perfect example of what we heard read in Romans a few weeks ago. Remember, we heard Romans 8, I think maybe three weeks ago, where, you know, God works, uh, God, um, all things work for the good of those who, are, who God calls according to his purpose, right? And we talked about how that doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out good for you in your situation, but God will bring good out of evil. God will redeem all things and use them to fulfill his purposes in the world, his plan of salvation, and even now, just thinking of that, right, we see this reflected also in popular literature. You know, in, in Tolkien's The Silmarillion, you know, there's a, a creator God figure. And as he's creating everything, you know, one of the, the wicked beings who's kind of like a Satan figure in Tolkien's uh, worldview sort of corrupts creation. And they, they like, hey, look what's going on. And he's like, don't worry, I've got this. He's like, everything that he does, I'm going to turn around and use it for the furtherance of my own purposes. And that's how God works everything good. And we see this particularly in the Joseph story. And I was particularly drawn towards Joseph's comments where he says that God sent me here to preserve life. And I was going to like try and, and you know, make all three, take all three readings and put them together and, and, and go through some of the themes through all them. But I couldn't get away from that phrase. God sent me here to preserve life to preserve life. And so we're going to look at this morning, the theme I'm going to be preaching on is the preservation of life versus the cult of death. So in this text, we get to the climax of the Joseph story. Now, he, this has been a few years that he's been playing this cat and mouse game with his brothers. It has to be because they had the journey and then come back. So there is some months at least they come to Egypt because there is famine and they need to buy food so they can survive. And so he makes them come back with their youngest brother, Benjamin. And then he tricks them after selling them the grain that they need by hiding a cup in Benjamin's bag. And then he has somebody search the brother's bag and they're like, look at this, what we found. You stole from us after we were so nice to you. Benjamin, you're going to be my slave now forever. And Joseph threatens them. He's like, I knew this by means of divination, right? By means of sorcery. And he says, Benjamin must stay as my slave, but the rest of you can leave. And Judah, his brother, intercedes for Benjamin. 
And this leads into the reading from this morning where Joseph finally reveals himself. And when I read this story, it, it, it kind of reminded me just a little bit of God's testing of Abraham, right? Joseph is testing his brothers. And they sort of have to rise to the challenge, and, and they do. And all of this culminates, right, in how they treat Benjamin, right? Now remember, Joseph before Benjamin was the favored son. Remember, the coat of many colors that was given to him. And how he had the dream of the, the sheaves and the stars bowing down before his sheaf and his star. And like a, a dumb teenager <laughs> who wants attention, he tells everybody, hey, and everybody knows what the dream means, right? They didn't need to get a dream interpretation book. They're like, we're not going to bow before you. Get up, like you're, you have a little bit of a big head there, Joseph. So they, they take him. They strip him of his, his many-colored robe. They throw him into a pit. They stain the coat with blood. They sell him to some traders. And they tell their father that Joseph was eaten by wild animals. He has another son, Benjamin. And all of that affection that used to be reserved for Joseph is now on Benjamin, right? So this is a big deal having Benjamin come there. Will they abandon Benjamin to Egypt? How will they react? They threw Joseph in a pit. They lied and said that he was dead. But the oldest son, Judah, he steps up finally and basically says, look, this is going to kill our father. Take me instead. Take me instead. And this change in his brother causes him to break character. And he, he, he says, he, everybody, get out of here except for you guys. And all the Egyptians leave. And there's wailing and everybody can hear him. And he's like, I am your brother, Joseph. Right? And he has to tell them this twice. Because the first time he says it, he probably switched to their language. Hey, I'm your brother. <laughs> Jaws on the ground. And after they picked it up, kind of looking at him, I'm, uh, I don't believe this. Seriously, I'm your brother. Because the last time they saw him, he was younger and bruised at the bottom of a pit, beaten up. He's able to see now, after many years, something he may not have seen when he was in the middle of his ordeal. Maybe a crystallized for him in that moment. Maybe he had this realization earlier, but it seems to me maybe right there he has, right now he has his insight that God was directing his life towards something greater than he would ever understand. And what God was directing him towards, this greater theme that he, he may not have had an understanding of until that moment, was that God had sent him there to, to preserve their lives that God used all of that wickedness that they had done to accomplish his purpose of salvation. Not just the preservation of his own family, right, who this is mainly concerning, because remember, his family, his father is Jacob, the recipients of the promises God had made to Abraham, right, God's elect covenant people. That's what elect means. It means that you are part of God's family. Elect does not mean that God decided these people over here are saved. These people over here, I'm going to damn them. That's not what elect means. Election is God choosing for himself a group of people and preserving that people towards fulfilling his purposes of salvation in the world. But not just his own family, right? So his family will be preserved. But who else is going to be preserved due to Joseph's actions? Egypt, because remember, 
He tells Pharaoh, famine is coming. We're going to have seven good years. We're going to have seven bad years. Pharaoh's like, I don't know what we're going to do. And Joseph says, I know what we're going to do. <laughs> During the seven good years, we're all going to save. He's a Dave Ramsey fan, I guess. We're all going to take something and we're going to put it in an envelope and save it, right? Until we have enough, enough money. We're going to save grain. We're going to store it. And then when the famine hits, we'll have enough for ourselves. But then we'll also be able to sell it to people who might need it, right? So Joseph's preservation, God using Joseph's, the, the, the part of the tragedy of his life that turned into his glory, God uses that not just for the preservation of Joseph's family, which is the point here, but also for the preservation of the Egyptian people and for the preservation of the people who will come to Egypt to buy food. Because remember, God's promise to Abraham that, that the blessing is, is that through you, all nations will be blessed. And we see that playing itself out here. God in his providence places Joseph in the most powerful position in Egypt next to Pharaoh in order to prepare, to prepare them. So not only are God's people, not only is their life preserved, but the nation in which they will settle is preserved too. Because the blessing, the blessing is for all nations. But this only comes as God's people live as God's people while in those nations. God is preserving the life of his people and the world against the force of surrounding death, right? That's what the, the famine represents, death all around the commentator Reno, he notes, only the reconciled elect can serve as instruments of the divine plan of sanctifying the whole world. So when faced with death, God had a place prepared for his people where they could be provided for, where they could take root and grow, where they could be safe from the storms raging in their places of origin. And Joseph settles them in the land of Goshen, a land of plenty. He says, I will take care of you. They will be safe. They will be protected while death is all around them. All around the nation of Egypt, they will be in a place where they will be kept. The sad thing is, and we'll cover this, right, because what we're going to do is, part of the, the lectionary is moving to Exodus, and I'm actually going to be preaching out of Exodus for most of the time while we're in there. But what we're eventually going to see is this cult of death eventually start to overtake the Egyptians too. And then God has to take his elect people and bring them out to a new land. God will deliver them. So when we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, we should think about it in comparison with the Joseph story. Jesus was sent to a place. His own people did not accept him. They threw, Joseph's, they threw Joseph in the pit and sold him into slavery. Jesus was crucified. But out of that came the seed for new life. Joseph was placed in the right places, in the right time to further God's purposes. And Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection fulfill God's purposes. So much so, right? Nobody knew what God was up to. I think St. Paul says, you know, if the wicked, if the forces of wickedness knew what was going to happen, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. And this brothers and sisters, the seed of new life, this is the Christian vocation, the preservation of life against the forces of cult of death. And the cult of death is the systems of this world and the evil spiritual forces that give them life and energy. The cult of death is everything wicked that seeks to destroy the human person made in the image of God. The cult of death serves the fallen, disordered desires of humanity and 
disconnect us from the only source of true and lasting life. And we see the cult of death all around us in our own time. The cult of death is all around us. Three days ago, I read a heartbreaking story of a father desperately trying to save his eight-year-old son from his ex-wife's social and medical attempts to try and transition him to a girl. His case was upheld by a judge, but now has been overturned by another judge. This is the cult of death at work, the destruction of children wrapped in the disguise of trying to help them actualize. We see the cult of death at work in our own world where police kneel on a black man's neck for eight minutes, killing him as he calls for his mother. We see the cult of death at work when police officers doing their duty are ambushed and killed. We see the cult of death at work when we turn our backs on the poor and the suffering of this world and refuse to take part in serving them and helping, him as our, helping them as our Lord asks us to. The cult of death permeates everything in this world. And it's into this we are called as Christians, like Joseph, to preserve life. And the preservation of life goes beyond saying enough is enough to social evils and working for their relief. There's more to it than that. We're kidding ourselves if we, if we think that standing up to the cult of death and the preservation of life, if this can be done according only to political processes, because political processes are easily influenced by the cult of death. The answer to the cult of death is new life, the preservation of life. It's only then that we can stand against death because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ fought death and triumphed over it. He stomped on death. He left it broken and battered and beyond hope of recovery. And brothers and sisters, we can only participate in this triumph over death and the worshipers of the cult of death by being incorporated into Christ. St. Ambrose wrote, Now as to what appears in Genesis, for God sent me before you to life, Christ repeats this in the gospel when he says, Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. For this is the recompense and life of the saints, that they also brought about the redemption of others. This is our work as saints, brothers and sisters, working for the redemption of those under the sway of the cult of death. And this has been on my mind a little bit too, given this in, in more traditional Christian circles, yesterday was the feast of the Dormition of the Theotokos. And the Theotokos is the title that early Christians gave to the Virgin Mary, which means the one who bore God, right? Because Jesus is God, right? She bore God in her womb. The Dormition is her, 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 her death, her death. And I was thinking about that, how her obedience to God, how her saying yes to the plan of God, regardless of what it may have cost her in her social standing, remember she was young and betrothed, she's not really married yet, and now she's pregnant. The social stigma that, that could have come, that would have come through that. Her obedience to God, 
help bring about the salvation of the world through her son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Her yes to God helped bring about the redemption of others. And that's what we're called to as well, brothers and sisters, is her yes to God is our yes to God. Her yes to God's purposes is our yes to God's purposes. Even it may have had negative consequences for her in the short term, believe me, it had long-term positive benefits for her. And just as it might have short-term benefits for us working for the preservation of life, it will we'll have long-term benefits from that as well. And, and we fight the cult of death not only through our evangelization, right, bringing about the redemption of others, but also how we're called to live as Christians in this world. If our lives as Christians look exactly the same as those not of the faith, then something is wrong. Now, please, don't misunderstand me here. There's a, 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 a sect of Christianity, uh, holiness churches, and they have a very strict list of do's and don'ts, you know? Very, very strict. And there's other denominations that have this too, you know? Uh, when I was in Bible college many years ago, many, many years ago uh, now, <laughs> they had monitors and I didn't want to be a monitor because I wanted people to like me, right? But the monitors would stand at the top of the stairs, and when you came up the stairs, they would check, and they would just, not with a ruler, but they would just look at you, and if, you're, if you were a guy and your hair was past your collar, they'd send you to the office, and, you know, you'd probably have to get sent home, or you'd get in trouble. Or if you were a woman and your skirt was above your knee, you know, it's not, they, they, were, they, they would notice, and they would say, hey, you know, here, you need to go to the office, it's not appropriate, <laughs> Right, and and that was their job, right? Sort of to monitor uh, what people were wearing, were they meeting the dress codes, and all that sort of thing. And this would always have negative reactions. And I understand the point of it, right? The point of it was trying to develop disciplined living, you know. But sometimes the letter of the law overrides the spirit behind behind it all. And so I'm not talking about holiness codes, like don't wear makeup. If you, go to, if you wear makeup, you're dressed up, and the Bible says terrible things about women who put on makeup and call some harlots. Relax. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Right? Want to wear earrings? Wear some earrings. You know, if you want to wear a skirt above your knee, you can wear a skirt above your knee. If you want to go to the movies, go to a movie. Right? That's not, <laughs> that's not what holiness is about. Right? Holiness develops in us. As, as, as journalist, uh, Christian journalist Rod Dreher, he notes in an article, as a result of strong, spiritually disciplined Christian living. He wrote this, there's no substitute for personal conversion, spiritual discipline, and building the structures and habits to sustain that pilgrimage in small communities. What he says here, I think, is so powerful because personal conversion is first, right? We heard what St. Ambrose said, that, that the recompense in the life of the saints is that they've brought about the redemption of others. That's our vocation to preserve life by introducing people and bringing people to the one whom, through whom all life flows from. That's conversion. There's no substitute for that, but there's no substitute for the spiritual disciplines and the building the structures and habits to sustain our walk in this world. And that might take place for many of us in, in little communities here, here and there. We're not gonna talk about withdrawing into communities, but, but the idea is conversion, then we discipline ourselves spiritually, right? Forming ourselves according to the way of Christ. Prayer, 
worship, fasting, and then building up the support network that we need, right? Like they were called into Goshen, right? They were provided for there. They, They were able to stay strong and grow there. And when things got really bad, God brought them out. And when we, like our Lord, stand against the cult of death, we can do so in the knowledge that he has already defeated it. And we're just biding our time until the whole world sees it and experiences it. I'll leave you with something that a commentator named Reno noted in his wonderful commentary on Genesis. He says, The divine plan is for God to counter sin with the real presence of his holiness in human life. The divine plan fights the infection of sin with a counter-infection of holiness. And I liked how he put that. And it's interesting to me, possibly maybe even serendipitous. On my way here, there's a, there's a, 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 a Christian teacher that I listen to, his podcast, and he's working his way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And he talked about today, as I was listening on the way here, he talked about the sting of death, right? When St. Paul says in Corinthians, death, where is your sting? We're all familiar with that. He mentions that when Paul, St. Paul talks about the sting of death, he's likening the sting to like venom, like a venomous bite. You know, like we know some snakes and lizards, they have venomous bites, and if they don't give you the anti-venom, you know, you could die or become seriously injured. Then death, there's a sting of death, and that sting, that venom is sin. And so the life of Christ that we are given by the indwelling spirit counters that venom of sin. It counters that sting that sin that is in us, that we all suffer from, that we all deal with. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us is that, I love what Reno says here, that that counter-infection of holiness. And it's only when we have been counter-infected with holiness that, that we can then work towards the preservation of life in the pattern of Joseph, who ultimately shows us our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom is due all glory together with his Father, who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. This is Pastor Mike Landsman, and if you have any questions about anything you heard or would like some more information about our church, feel free to email me, malandsman at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Zion's Stone UCC, or our website, zionstoneucc.com. We have a GoFundMe set up as well for some repairs that we need. GoFundMe.com slash UCC. As we continue to navigate the fallout from the coronavirus, I'd like to thank everyone for their continued generosity. It always amazes me how generous you've been. And I pray that the blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be with you 